So um, last week at Bellingham, Grant was speaking on Genesis chapter 6 about these giants in the Bible called the Nephilim. And I've been called Nephilim all week. And then I come here and I get accused of being nine seven. I want you to know I'm only just a, a, a small paltry 6'6". Six, six. So if you were wondering how, how big I am. Uh, listen, one of the things Rich actually texted me a couple days ago. He goes, well, I'm on vacation. And this is awesome. I'm so glad he gets to be on vacation. Uh, he goes, I'm on vacation, but we, when, before you start, will you tell everybody about the Christ the King Network? And so uh, let me start with that. Like Rich mentioned in the video, um, I have the privilege of leading us. There's five different campuses. So there's here, uh, North Bay, uh, Ferndale, Bellingham, oh, excuse me, you are Ferndale, uh, downtown <laughs> and Sutton Valley. So there's, there's five different campuses, and right now, our, our goal is just continue expanding what God is doing. We don't want to be just saying, hey, we're doing church just for us. We always want to have this outward look, outward focus. And so we said, you know, God, however you lead, movement's up to you, but however you lead, we'd love to start more and more churches. And so one of the cool things that's happening right now um, is up at CDK North Bay, uh, we have an intern up there by the name of Tyler who is actually preparing this year to start CDK Blaine. So we're excited about keeping going, and I uh, just want to let you know, um, we would love to see Ferndale start another church too, and we told, we told Rich, uh, so when does CDK Canada start, Rich? Come on now. Yeah, it's, ti it's time to re recruit some old friends. So no, we would love, we, and, and, and that's really the heart of what we're trying to do as a church. What we realized is we don't want to just warehouse people in our building. We want to continue expanding and going beyond ourselves. And I love the network we have. I love the connection we have between the five churches and, and all of our pastors have such unity together. It's really a joy to be part of something where you feel like, you know what? We like each other. We're enjoying what God's doing and it's healthy. And that's kind of our focus as a church, really. And if I, I put it at your, at your hands and feet, it's simply this. Church, get as healthy as you can. And healthiness ultimately looks like moving towards holiness is be more and more like Jesus, because if we do that as a church, we're just going to have the opportunity to reach out to more and more people. So anyway, just to give you that quick update on kind of who I am and, and, and the, kind of the role I get to play there. I also have the privilege of leading all the staff at Bellingham. So um, yeah, I have, I have some fun roles, and, it, and it's great to be here. In fact, I'm on a tour right now. I'm starting here next week, North Bay, back to Bellingham, down to Burlington, uh, and then downtown. So I get, to, I get to get to play all over the place. It's kind of fun. But the series that you've already started, that have been in for a few weeks, is this flawed series. And it started out of the book of Hebrews, looking at Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of this, what's called the hall of faith in the Bible. All these faithful people are listed in, the, in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to jump into Hebrews chapter 11 and read these passages. And I'm sorry, by the way, that you have no, um, you're going to have no notes up here. Because I sent Natalia the wrong sermon when she asked for one. So uh, she was actually putting notes in for a different sermon. I'm not going to be preaching it here, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but I want to encourage you, uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, eventually we're going to be in um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we'll get to that, or 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll get to that in a minute if you want to turn there. But that's where we're going to be in the majority of this morning, is 2 Samuel chapter 11. But, but here's, here's what was spoken first in Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? And this is the author of Hebrews has just got through listing all these wonderful people and all these incredible things they've done because of their faith. And in fact, he's already told us it's impossible to please God without faith. Then he says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, 
about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. If you've been around church for a while, some of those names might actually be familiar to you. Gideon marched and walls fell. Super strong Samson did incredible feats. Samuel the priest had an amazing relationship with God. But the one who sticks out to me is this guy by the name of David. And maybe it's because my dad happens to be named David King. I don't know. Uh, But it sticks out to me. Who is David? Well, David is one of the most important kings in Jewish history. He was the unexpected chosen king. And in fact, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see a story where God asks um, Samuel to go to this small town. It's called the town of Bethlehem. It's a little agricultural town. He says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And so Jesse lines up all his kids, and they're all smart and well-educated and good-looking and all this stuff. And, and And he starts going through these kids one by one. And at one point, Samuel goes, well, I thought it was going to be the oldest one because look at him. Look, look, look at this guy. I mean, he's the perfect candidate to be king. And this is God's response. I think this is fascinating. Do not look at his countenance or his tall stature. Yeah, maybe this is something I needed to hear too. Uh, For I have rejected him. For it is not as man perceives it. A man looks at what is visible to the eyes but God looks into the heart. Isn't isn't that the case, though? We we love our first impressions, but God measures differently. So so Samuel asked Jesse if he has any more sons, and Jesse goes, well, yeah, I got the little one, but he's the runt. He's the one out tending the sheep, and it's this little one, this runt by the name of David, who Jesse ends up bringing in, and Samuel goes, oh, yeah, God, God wants this one. And it's amazing what David ends up doing. This little one, this younger brother, this nobody, this shepherd boy. I want to list for you some of David's accomplishments because I want to make sure you're caught up with who he is. As a young man, this shepherd boy took five smooth stones in a sling and he defeated a giant. Most everybody has heard the story of David and Goliath. He was and forever will be a legend because of this great defeat. He was also an incredible warrior. He eliminated the surrounding competition, including the Amalekites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Ammonites. Those names may mean nothing to you, but those were all the bad dudes in his region. In fact, he had an elite fighting force known as the Mighty Men. It was like the original SEAL Team 6, right? These guys were amazing. David conquered the city of Jerusalem. He drove out the Philistines, the mortal enemy of the Israelites. He restored Jerusalem, and this is a very big deal. He also brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This is a symbol of stability and strength. Having God in his rightful home matters, and ultimately his son built a temple that would house the Ark of the Lord. Also, he set up a dynasty through a covenant with God. If I were to put it in modern language, he brought his people to the ultimate power source and in doing so, stabilized the kingdom. And finally, he united the northern and the southern kingdoms into one kingdom again. Israel became unified under King David. Impressive resume? Oh, you bet it is. This is one powerful king, one amazing leader. In fact, it was said of him, he was a man after God's own heart. 
I mean, wow, what a compliment. Not only was this guy great in battle, but here, this is really curious. Got to check this out. He was also an incredible poet. In the middle of the Bible, there's this book called Psalms. They're, they're basically poetry. Half of them were written by King David. I mean, seriously, is there anything this guy couldn't do? He was a warrior poet, a kingdom builder, a unifier, and a man after God's own heart. He was the complete package. He was the king of kings. He was the man's man. And when you look back in Jewish history, people would say of him that they are in the line of King David. They wanted to align with him. If they could be from David's lineage, it would be like, yes, I'm one of the chosen ones. Militarily, politically, and spiritually, this guy got the work done. But here's the whole truth. David was flawed. Deeply flawed. See, we have this idea if people are flawed, they're losers, they're incapable, they're unable to produce, or they're permanently disqualifying themselves, but that's not the case here. Again, militarily, politically, spiritually, David accomplished a great deal. But still, he was flawed. If you have a Bible, or I'm even going to say this, if you have a Bible app and your mom will let you be on the phone in here, <laughs> you're, op- you're welcome to open it. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to be reading an incredible story around King David. It's a story that seems to echo throughout time, and it's a reminder to us why power and lust are still two of the biggest flaws of humanity and how they haven't changed over the years. So I'm going to start the first verse, and I'm going to do a lot of Bible today. We're going to read through this whole passage. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Isn't it interesting? When kings go off to war, yet David, the king, didn't go off to war. That should be our first indicator, right? They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of his palace. Now, in ancient Hebrew culture, they would take naps in the afternoon during the heat of the day and then rise again in the cooler part of the evening, much like the siesta of the Spanish culture today. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Oops. So, David's in his palace. Now, you have to imagine his kingdom. I want to set the stage for you a little bit. His palace, and this is true of most kingdoms, is set above everyone else's place of dwelling. The king can literally look down from his palace on his whole kingdom. And so, here's this woman who normally is bathing in what we would say the privacy of her own roof. Nobody's going to see her because she's on the roof. But one person could. It was the king. Because he had a vantage point that no one else had. Okay? (laughs) And, And David decides, hey, I want that. 
And because he is king, he gets whatever he wants. He lusts after her, and he takes her. But if you're thinking, well, come on, Todd, it always takes two to tangle, that, that, that is true, but, but let me be clear about something. Back then, the power structure was very different. He, as king, had total control. As king, he could kill her if she refuses. He's the king of his kingdom, and he has all the power. There is no political correctness here. This is just pure power and total lust. So, so what does David do when he finds out she's pregnant? Well, you know what? He tries to fix it in the way that only unfiltered power can try to fix broken things with more power. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how long the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, and the next, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. So David is trying to cover his sin by having Uriah come home from battle, get him drunk, and then have him sleep with his own wife so that he would believe the baby she is carrying is his. Right? It's pretty obvious. But Uriah is loyal. Uriah is faithful. He is there not for his kingdom, but for David's kingdom. And he is concerned that he would do something dishonorable by go taking advantage of this free time. This all-powerful king's trickery doesn't work. So, he goes to plan B. And again, it's amazing what happens when uncontrolled power does whatever it wants. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Job had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Job, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. This will make everything okay, right? <laughs> the good husband is dead, the scandal is covered, and soon King David will be inviting Bathsheba to join him in the castle as his wife. And she does. And then a baby is born to them. And because he is powerful and because he is king, David almost got away with it. Well, 
until you realize that an earthly king is no comparison to our heavenly one. Let me remind you about the character of God. God sees everything. God knows everything. God is present at all times, everywhere. So God sends a message to one of his prophets. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now again, Old Testament prophets, what their role was, was to speak on behalf of God. If you really want to know what a prophet is, most the easiest way to describe this is he was a truth teller. Okay, So his job, Nathan was coming to David to tell the truth. When he came to him, he said, hey, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared, it, he shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Are, are you seeing how he's milking this whole story, right? Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking down his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David doesn't see it coming, does he? <laughs> Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have even given you more. I want to pause here for a second. If you have power, if you own a business, if you're a boss, if you're a parent, or if you're in control, remember something. Everything, everything comes from God. He is in charge of all things and nothing escapes his sight. God gives and God takes all things. <laughs> and this Nathan is giving us an incredible reminder that this mighty, powerful, well-respected, history-setting, legend-making king, that he was flawed. He's trying to get us to see from a different perspective. And he's trying to get David to see from a different perspective. Why, he said, I love this question, verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart your house. And because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God doesn't hold back. God doesn't like bullies. He doesn't respect uncontrolled power or lust. And so God lets David have it. As powerful as King David is, this flaw got him in trouble. And this flaw of power and lust and murder do not escape God's sight. 
David will be punished for it. And if you know the rest of the story, all this that was spoken comes to be. But that's for another time. Church, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you know this flawed thing is universal. Everyone is flawed. Everyone suffers with, with character weaknesses or sometimes even nasty mistakes. We all have areas where we cut corners, ignore the signposts, reject good guidance, and simply do what we want to do. We all sin. That's our shared human condition. And you may be thinking right now, yeah, but I've never done that. I've never killed anybody. Ha! I've never slept with another man's wife. True. That may be true. And none of you are kings of a literal kingdom. No one in this room has that type of power. But what if you did? What if you had all power? Might that change you? Careful how you think about this because you've also never been in David's shoes before. But you have some power. You, you, you may not do what David did, but you can use power in inappropriate ways in your home, in your place of employment, in your circle of influence. We all wield power in different ways. And sometimes it's not good. I um, and no one around my household for getting annoyed by small things. So because my brain tends to be more visionary and I can see how things need to go forward, it's the small things when they happen to me, I get really ticked off. I might even have what we call a short fuse at times. The other day, a couple weeks ago, I was changing the guts. I think I don't know have the name for it, some valve thingy inside our, um, our shower downstairs. You might have done this before. It's not too complicated. You don't even need a plumber for it. You just need to be able to pull something off, pull it out, put the new thing in. Simple. It, yes, you have to turn off the water first. I know that. Um, I did not have the right size Allen wrench to take the outside cover off. And I started getting mad. And I had my boys. Here's where my power is. I have my two children. They're 18 and 19 years old. I'm like, find the Allen wrenches for me. Find them now. And I was getting ticked off because they brought me like, like, like I probably had 80 Allen wrenches, but I did not have the right one. And I was just getting angry thinking, this is so simple. It's so small. This is not a complicated fix. Any human being could do this. All I need is a simple, tiny Allen wrench. And I caught myself because I was starting to get more heated and more testy, and more irritable. And I had control over my children. I could do whatever I wanted. And I remember God just sitting there tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, how are you going to respect your own children? How are you going to treat them when you're frustrated? Calm down. Walk out to the barn yourself. Don't put it on your kids' shoulders. It was a moment. And I had a choice to make. And here's the thing, guys. When, when I'm reading through this, David finally saw it. And he did the one thing I think all of us need to do. He owned it. By the way, that is the solution for the power trap. Submit to God. You want to know how no matter what type of power you have, 
how you, how you can control that power, how you can manage it in a way that's appropriate. There is one way, submit to God. God spoke to me in that moment about the Allen Wrench. I changed my spirit and my attitude because God inspired me to do something. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing that to my attention. I needed his help at that moment. When we submit to God, it changes us. I want you to watch what David does next. Verse 3. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He owned it. He admitted his wrongdoing, and he never did this again. And that, my friends, is true repentance. And it had its cost. God didn't let David off the hook. There were consequences for doing something this rash. But David was beside himself with sorrow because he knew he had turned from God, and he knew he was punished for that. But what's amazing is how David owned this. He didn't shirk away from his responsibility. He didn't deny his participation. He didn't blame God or others for his mistake or pretended it wasn't real. David came face to face with this mistake, and he even lamented this. Remember how I told you that David was a poet? In the middle of the Psalms, actually Psalm 51, there's a poem written by David. And the title of that poem, it says, a poem written by David after Nathan the prophet had come and <laughs> came and basically kicked his butt. That's my interpretation of it. And I want you to read, I want to read these words to you because David the poet, this is a psalm that owns his junk. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Again, are you seeing the level of ownership he has here? He's admitting it. He's realizing it. He should even be punished. He's not trying to shirk away or pretend it's not real. He's like, yeah, God, I, I, I own it. Then he says this, he goes, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now, hyssop was a plant used in cleansing ceremonies back in those days. And this is an ancient way of saying, God, make me pure, make me clean. And then he goes on to say, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide, my, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So, so what do you do when your flaws take you down the wrong path? How do faithful people respond to a holy God when their flawed character allows them to make devastating mistakes? I believe this psalm gives us an excellent framework to return to God. Throughout the Bible, we see this over and over again. It's the word repent. It's the idea of letting go, of, of, of stopping. I'm going this direction, but I'm going to do an about face, a 180. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back to what is good and right. And that indeed is what David did. The next couple of verses of Psalm 51 give us an epic look at what it takes to leave the life of power, lust, and control and give it back to God. Look at what 
David asks after his major screw-up. I, I love this part of Psalm 51. Starting at verse 10, he says this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew your, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I believe this is a brilliant prayer. I would even say it's a prayer for total healing. But I'd like to unpack these couple verses and see what it could do for us as far as restoring our relationship with God. In this prayer, David asked for five things to happen. Okay? I want to go through them. And, and, and let's look at these piece by piece. Number one, he asked for a pure heart. David asked to be pure so that the core of his being would imitate God, that his motives would be right all the time. And can I be honest? Most of us struggle with a pure heart. Once we have desire or passion or our preferred direction, we ignore so many influence and signs and wisdom so we can have what we want to have. Imagine what David said to himself when he saw Bathsheba on the balcony of her house. Oh, he thought all sorts of thoughts, but he could have chosen the pure route. He could have said, no, I'm not going to engage that. I'm going I'm to stop those actions. But he didn't. Our solution is to ask for a pure heart. So that's how David starts this prayer. Secondly, he asks for a steadfast spirit. David is asking that he won't fall into his flaws again that God would make his spirit right or righteous. He is surrendering his heart to God. God, have your way with me. Make me your man all the time, not just part-time. God, grant me this request. <laughs> Give me a steadfast spirit, something that's going to be all the time. Third, he said he asked to not be cast away from God. Now, this one, I think, requires a little context. The inevitable result of sin is that we feel a disconnection for God. And asking for that relationship to be restored is paramount. But, but technically, David saw something that we, don't, we can't really experience today. David saw his kingly pre predecessor, King Saul, actually that the God of the universe said, I'm going to take my Holy Spirit from Saul. He saw that happen to Saul. And he saw the misery that Saul was in because he no longer had God's Spirit with him. Now, because of Jesus Christ, we... We have a mediator between us and God. That will never happen to us. So we don't have quite the same effect as David does. But still, he's asking, Lord, don't let our relationship get screwed up. I think that's still relevant to us today. What a blessing we have, Jesus, and what a blessing we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit. Fourth, he asks for the restoration of the joy of salvation. That he would return again and again to the goodness of finding faith in God. Today, it is asking for a continual influx of joy into our lives to keep our faith vibrant. Church, are you filled with joy? Are you filled with joy? That the good God of the universe has made right relationship between you and him. That should give us so much joy. And his request is, Lord, keep that joy coming. Keep it flowing. Keep it full. Joy is one of the combatants of falling prey to our flaws. With joy, our spirit is righted. You hear that? With joy, our spirits are righted and temptations are slighted. We need joy in our lives. If you don't have joy, my question for you is, 
do you really know Jesus? Jesus is our joy. Joy centers us. Joy transforms us. We need the joy to have true healing. And finally, David asks for a willing spirit. Here's the bottom line with David. He owned it. His spirit was willing to take responsibility for his sin. And when he realized he screwed up, he goes, yep, I did it. That is a willing spirit. How many of us are so resistant to God and others that we can't even own our own junk? We're always looking to blame someone else. David didn't do that in the least bit. His spirit was willing to follow. When God corrected him, when God rebuked him, he said, you bet, God, I see it, I'm going to own it. He asked for a pure heart, a steadfast spirit, not to be cast away from the Lord. He asked for restoration of the joy of salvation, and he asked for a willing spirit. Church, this prayer would change us. This prayer would heal us. This prayer would help us and our faith in the middle of our flawed existence. And this prayer reminds us that we have a God who wants right relationship with us. I would like to close our time together by praying that prayer over you. And here's the cool thing. After I'm done praying, the worship team is going to come back up. And some of you will remember there was this old Keith Green song that was over this verse, Creating Me a Clean Heart. And we're going to close our service together by singing that song. But first, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I would like to pray a prayer of blessing over you. So stand up. Let me close with this prayer. Lord Jesus, would you totally heal our brokenness, our power struggle, our lusts, and evil thoughts we have towards others? Keep us from hurting, judging, and being unkind to our fellow man and woman. Create in us pure hearts, Lord. Make us more like you. Give us steadfast devotion to you. Make our hearts right and righteous. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice and how you have given us access to the Holy Spirit to mediate between our flaws and God's holiness. Thank you that you make us right. So Spirit of the living God, would you give us a tremendous reminder of your grace by restoring our joy and granting us a willingness to follow, to obey, and to be what you want us to be. Lord Jesus, lift our spirits and make us more like you. Lord, I I boldly ask this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen.